We have the next video loaded. Before we send it your way, be sure to click the like and subscribe buttons. Now that is out of the way, here is your video coming at you fast. The T-72. From the 1980s, no other tank has seen the battlefield more than this. From the Balkans to the Caucasus Mountains to the Middle East to Somalia and Ethiopia, this tank has seen its share of combat. When the T-72 was introduced in the late 1970s, it was to usher in a new arms race and tank design in the West. With its large 125mm gun and auto-loading turret, it could be manned by only a three-man crew as opposed to four by most other main battle tanks that were in production at the time. When it first appeared on the battlefield during the Iran-Iraq War, it quickly became a feared opponent to the Iranians. The chieftains and M60s the Iranians had were simply outclassed and outgunned. Even the American-made tow missiles could not penetrate the thicker armor on the new Soviet achievement in tank design. After almost a decade of war, there were only around 60 T-72s knocked out in combat. In Somalia, this powerful performance once again showed its prominence as the American and British tanks that equipped the Ethiopian army failed to be an effective counter to the T-72. Soon, Soviet clients were buying these tanks as fast as they could be built. The tank was not only a battlefield success, but a moneymaker as well. To date, more than 20,000 T-72s of all variants have been produced and sold worldwide. The tanks seem to be unstoppable. Then in 1991, the ground war for Operation Desert Storm began. The T-72 would finally go up against the newest generations of Western tanks. These new tanks, much maligned in the press as being too big and too expensive and too complicated for warfare, with crews not accustomed to combat, would now go up against a T-72 equipped opponent that had 10 years of experience in combat with the tank. The curtains were drawn open at the Battle of 73 Easting. But how did this tank come to be in the first place? This all started with the T-34. What is arguably the best tank of World War II, especially when upgraded with the 85mm gun, this tank struck fear into even the most battle-hardened Wehrmacht and SS tank crews. When the Germans first encountered them in Operation Barbarossa, they were shocked to find a tank that could defeat any German tank currently on the battlefield. This was a stark contrast to the Soviet invasion of Finland, where the BT-7 and T-26 equipped tank divisions of the Soviets performed poorly and led to the Finns embarrassing the Soviets. The T-34, along with the KV-1, were simply more powerful and better armored than the Panzer III and Panzer IV German tanks being fielded by the Wehrmacht. The tank wasn't equipped with the biggest gun or the thickest armor, but they were enough to combat the best of the German tanks that they could produce in very large numbers. In the entire war, production figures for all Panther types reached no more than 6,557, and for all Tiger types, including the Tiger I and Tiger II, only 2,027. Production figures of the T-3485 alone reached 22,559 tanks. How good the T-3485 was, was demonstrated yet again, this time in the Korean War. North Korean T-34s proved to be too much for the South Korean and even the first U.S. reinforcements to the peninsula. Tank shells and anti-tank rounds simply bounced off the T-34s as the Allies pulled back and held onto their defensive positions in the Pusan perimeter. With better anti-tank weapons, close air support, newer American tanks, more capable of dealing with the Soviet tanks arriving, the supremacy of the T-3485 was finally over.
The T-34 can still be found on the battlefield to this day. They have been seen in combat with the Houthi rebels in Yemen. For more information on that, check out the link to Mark Felton's channel for the T-34 ripcord. Be sure to comment you came from Combat Ineffective. The Soviets began to design their next tank, what would then become the T-5455. This was the most mass-produced tank in the world, with some estimates showing production of 86,000 to 100,000 of these tanks. While boasting better armor and a more powerful 100mm gun, the performance of the T-55 was mixed. In many cases, the deciding factor was training and tactics, rather than the tank itself being too powerful. For example, during the Six Days War, Israelis armed with British Centurions, American M48s, and even some M4 Sherman tanks handled the T-55 well. This is in contrast to the Iran-Iraq War, where in one battle, Iran lost 214 Chieftain and M60A1 tanks to 45 Iraqi T-55s and T-62s. In Vietnam, the T-55 was one of the last images most people saw, with a T-55 busting through the gates of the Presidential Palace in Saigon. With these performances as the benchmark, it was clear that the T-55, while still maintaining the same design premises of the T-34, being adequate but cheap for mass production, did not maintain the legacy of the Soviet tanks like the T-34. The T-55 was further developed into the T-62, but this was merely only a subtle improvement. With these as the benchmarks, the Soviet Union went on to create a brand new tank, the T-64, which was only produced in the Soviet Union, particularly Ukraine, as one of the most advanced tanks of its time. Boasting a 125mm gun, an autoloader, and newer composite armor, it was technologically superior to any tank on the battlefield. However, this tank proved to be far more expensive to be put into the same production numbers of the T-55 and T-62. The Soviets then decided to create a new tank, borrowing some of the features of their T-64, but reducing costs in others to create the T-72. The T-72 was only to be made during the case of war, but with the production cost almost 40% lower than the T-64, it was quick to be put into production. As the T-64 and later T-72s were noticed by the West, they began to design their own new tanks. The German Leopard was the first. This represented a quantum leap forward. The Leopard and later Western tanks such as the M1 Abrams were designed to fight against the massive numbers of Soviet tanks that were feared to one day roar across the fault gap. These tanks were more thickly armored, using new armor technology and composites instead of just rolled steel. They were equipped with new stabilization systems, allowing them to accurately fire while on the move. Crew survivability was given a higher priority as well, creating tanks that were much safer to their crews if they were hit. Coupled with better sensors and thermal sights, these tanks were amazing feats of engineering. As the ground war started, the M1A1 tanks of the U.S. Army rolled into the desert and came face-to-face -face with battle-hardened T-72s of the Iraqi Republican Guard. In the battle that ensued, the T-72s were crushed by the Newberry American tanks. If you would like to learn more about this, then consider purchasing Armored Calf by Tom Clancy on Kindle or in paperback. This book makes a great gift. For military history readers, this one can show you what some of the advantages were of the M1A1 over the T-72s in particular during Desert Storm. It is a great read and very informative source. The link is in the description, and if you purchase through that link, you will be helping to support this channel. 
We are a crowd-supported channel, so any purchases go into making better content for all of you. Now back to the video. So the T-72 very quickly proved to be a white elephant on the battlefield. The Western tanks could defeat the tank in just about every category. The T-72 had an effective range of around 3,000 meters, as opposed to the 4,000 that the M1A1 could engage the T-72s. The T-72 also had inferior infrared sights, as opposed to more advanced thermal sights, which made them at a disadvantage in night and low-light battles. T-72s could not carry as many rounds as the Western tanks. The T-72 used a dual-charge system, where the round is loaded and then a backing charge is loaded. With this setup, only around 20 rounds are carried, as opposed to around 40 for an M1A2 or a Leopard 2 tank. The T-72 is also significantly slower at 37 miles per hour. Even the older French AMX-30 was capable of 40. And if that wasn't enough, the T-72 had a much tougher time penetrating the new composite armor of the Western tanks. The T-72 quickly showed itself to be obsolete. So then why do we still see this on the battlefield in conflicts all over the world? One word, cost. The T-72 was far cheaper and easier to produce and man than any of the Western tanks in the world. An M1A1, for example, costs over $5 million per tank. You can get four T-72s for the price of one of these and only 12 people to crew them as opposed to 16 for the same amount of M1A1s. In many places, the T-72 is still king of the battlefield for this reason. The numbers you can buy and use, and the ease of maintaining them, means it can still be used in significant numbers. Even when nations fight each other, you can still see T-72s in the front lines. In the Second Artsakh War, for example, both sides were primarily armed with T-72s. So while the T-72 might be an obsolete relic of the Cold War, it is still going to be out there in combat for the foreseeable future. Hey, before we go, be sure to check out the links in the description. Also, be sure to comment below and like and subscribe.